0: Thanks for pressing play. In 1995, Terry Williams and her husband, Kevin Cohee, purchased a small struggling community bank in Boston. Today, One United is the largest black-owned bank in the United States of America. Since they started, Terry, Kevin, and their team have made over $1 billion in loans. Together, Terry and Kevin are showing how banking and entrepreneurship can change lives, communities, and yes, even a country. Now, as I'm sure you know, there are horrific injustices and economic inequalities endured by our African-American brothers and sisters, those of us who are not African-American. It turns out that um, home equity is 35% of the average household's net worth Yet, African-Americans face mortgage denial rates that are twice as high and they pay more for their mortgages than their white fellow Americans. And stunningly, only one percent of loans from traditional banks, uh, a.k.a. white run banks, go to black people. So this lack of access to capital has a massive ripple effect throughout the entire community and, frankly, country. And that's what motivated Eddie Yoon, Dave Ferguson, Quentin McMurphy, and myself to come together and write an article for Harvard Business Review about what we call justice deposits. It turns out there's a handful of very forward-leaning American companies like Netflix and Costco and a handful of others who have started to move some of their cash deposits from their traditional banks to um, one united or banks like one united and um, the reason this is important is pretty simple banks take deposits and turn them into loans and so banks can only lend out what they have or what they can leverage to lend out anyway you get my point the more deposits they have the more loans they can make it's pretty much that simple and so a handful of legendary companies have stepped forward to do justice deposits And uh, frankly, to be blunt, we're trying to encourage individuals and companies and faith-based organizations and nonprofits to move some of their business to black-owned banks. As well, uh, you probably know February is Black History Month in America. And so for all those reasons and many more, I could not be more excited to share this conversation with you. Terry's incredible. And along with being an entrepreneur, she's also an author of a book called I Got Bank, What My Granddad Taught Me About Money. And what you're about to hear is a very powerful conversation about One United's mission, how as wife and husband, they run a successful business together and they raise two uh, wonderful children together. And um, pay special attention to Terry's thoughts on what it really means to make money and be a banker. I think you're going to love this one. My friends at uh, Oracle NetSuite are number one in cloud ERP. They are the business system in the cloud that you need. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today. That's NetSuite.com (laughs) slash slash different my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And we have set sail. Our new newsletter, Category Pirates, is out and available. Go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. Now, hey ho, let's go. So how are you, Terry? Good,
1: good, good. How are you, Chris?
0: I'm great. It's so great to see you. You have such a big smile.
1: (laughs) So do you like Chris or Christopher?
0: Either or. I get called both and my wife has some derogatory name she calls me too. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, I I have a thousand things I would love to talk to you about, Mm. but maybe off the top, um, is there anything particular on your mind right now? Oh,
1: there's so much on my mind. I guess the 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 biggest thing on my mind right now is we just uh, we just launched a a campaign and conference, a financial literacy conference, and I'm just so excited that we you know already out of the gate we have thousands of of our customers as well as non-customers that have signed up to spend a Saturday on uh, learning how they could build wealth. So uh, just this, you know, sort of it's for me, it's just, I don't know, it's just what my life is all about. So I'm just very excited about that. That's, that's probably the most thing I'm, I'm focused on besides the uh, incident that we just had here at the branch. But, uh, but that's, ex- I'm excited about that.
0: It sounds exciting. Tell me a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we call it the one transaction conference, uh, and campaign. And we are uh, encouraging the black community to focus on one transaction in 2021. Um, to close the racial wealth gap for their family, to build wealth for their family. And we give them um, a choice of six. Uh, So a will, uh, insurance, life insurance, um, home ownership, uh, having a profitable business, uh, improving their credit score, or savings and investments. And we ask them to select one of those six. And then we provide them with action steps uh, to accomplish that in 2021. And then we're having this conference uh, on Juneteenth. Juneteenth is an African-American uh, holiday. It's uh, Saturday, uh, June 19th, where we're going to have a, a virtual conference. Um, we have guest speakers like Damon John from uh, Shark Tank. Uh, we have uh, Karen Hunter, who is on Sirius Radio and the Karen Hunter Show. Michelle Singletary, who's a Washington Post financial, uh, personal finance journalists. Uh, So we have a variety of really great speakers that are going to educate uh, the community on how they can build wealth. So sort of financial literacy, we, We, our goal is to make financial literacy a core value in the Black community.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. Sister, maybe, yes. maybe in the whole world community. How about yes, that? Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. It absolutely. boggles
0: my mind that you can graduate high school in the United States of America. And to the best of my knowledge, most people who graduate high school never take one class on how to balance a checkbook yes. or how to deal with a credit card or yes. what a mortgage is, right. et cetera, et cetera.
1: Right. A lot of your listeners may remember home economics back in the days, but they don't teach that anymore in school. And so it's just amazing how you can go into the world and not learn anything about money. I mean, that's, you know, and I I remember growing up, um, we used to go on these drives, uh, these Sunday drives. And I used to look around and see all these houses and see, you know, how everyone was living and trying to figure out, you know, sort of what made the difference. And I, as a kid, I couldn't figure that out. Like what made the difference between people that had resources and people that didn't. And I, I guess at that time I made the decision, like this shouldn't, this shouldn't be a mystery. And I really have committed my life to, to make that not a mystery for our community.
0: Yes. And it's interesting. We're talking about this. Uh, I've been working with a young uh, entrepreneur named Iron Mike Stedman, and he's a, uh, he's a former Marine captain former navy boxing champion and he's now started an incubator primarily focused on the black community in newark new jersey and he met me through my writing he heard about one of my books and reached out and we started connecting and building a friendship and i've been trying to support him in his endeavors but one of the things he has said to me uh terry is he said he said my people don't know about this stuff And so maybe tell me a little bit about, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about financial literacy in the black community.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is, uh, although what he said is, is partially true, it is not why we don't have wealth. And that's, that's sort of the interesting part of this journey. So uh, just to give you a little bit of my background, because it sort of relates to this, um, I'm from this place called Indiantown, Florida, it's a population of 7,000 people. Uh, When I was growing up, there was a railroad track. White people lived on one side. Black people lived on the other. And I didn't realize until I was in my 50s how successful my great-grandmother was and how she was a role model for me. Uh, I left Indian Town and went to Brown University. And when I got there, people sort of just looked down on uh, me coming from Indian Town and I think at that point, I sort of cut off that part of my life and thought that I had arrived when I got to Brown. And so if you asked me like years ago, you know, how did you become president and owner of the largest black owned bank in the country, I would say I went to Brown, I went to Harvard Business School, I worked at Bank of America, I worked at, you know, I would have given you that resume. But what I realized when I was 50 is that, no, I actually had learned about business from my great grandmother. She owned a uh, penny candy store, a barbecue pit, a juke joint, which uh, is a, basically a bar. But, you, you know, uh, she owned a bunch of real estate. And I said, just follow her around. And, I, you know, I it just it, it pains me to think that I didn't realize the importance of her in my journey. But then I realized as I was doing this research that she passed away my freshman year in college. So I went, you know, to this Ivy League school where everybody was looking down at me, and I lost my great grandmother at the same time, and I I sort of cut off that part of my life, and I, I I tell that story to young kids. I was like, everybody, you know, I called her my honey. Everybody has a my honey in their life, but that 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 journey is really what happened to the black community when you know back in the you know twenties, thirties, fifties, you know, we had black businesses. And then once, you know, sort of integration happened and we were able to go into other businesses, really, we started to look down, frown on our businesses, and sort of lost a lot of that, you know, I'll call that business muscle that we had, that my great-grandmother had, and, you know, sort of really started from scratch, you know, in these, you know, corporations. And yet, you know, the reason for my success, I realized, I mean, I, I majored in economics at Brown you know, graduated with honors, made it, you know, Harvard Business School, graduated top of the class, was because I had that, you know, I'll call it sort of back of the grocery store kind of experience with my great-grandmother. You know, I used to see her buying stuff and selling stuff. So and, it's, you
0: know. it's great that you went to Harvard, and that's all very amazing, and congratulations, but the truth is, the truth it is, all starts my with honey. my honey.
1: It's my honey. It's my honey.
0: She, and she was your great-grandma?
1: Yes, my great-grandmother,
0: yeah. So yeah. I'm trying to imagine the time of her life yeah. living in Florida yeah. uh, um, where there was segregation. Segregation. And she yeah. was an entrepreneur that owned real estate and bars yeah. and all yeah. it was doing all these different things. Yeah. And, of course, she was a she.
1: Yes, and she was a she. I didn't even think of her as being a businesswoman, you know, as, as a kid. I mean, that term wasn't even coined. She was just, you know, my honey. Everybody called her Miss Honey. She was my honey to us, and I didn't even think of her that way. Um, but I will say, once it hit me, because you know, really, someone just really pressed me, like, you know, how are you, you? How did you become you? And you know, I did the resume thing, and they're like, no, 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 how? And I, that's when it hit me, like, oh my gosh, you know, it's my, it's, it was my honey. And I, you know, I talked to my dad, who's still living. He's like 92, and he's still living. And I told him, I said, you know, Dad, I think. I think I'm my honey, you know, I think. And he was like, yes, you know, that uh, it doesn't surprise me that she had that much of an impact on you. And then I found out she, she had an impact on the entire town. Like all, all these people started coming out in the woodworks and telling me her story. And so, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that is important, you know, to the Black community is for us to really recognize those individuals who are, you know, have been forgotten and to to really eliminate the shame that we carry um, because we didn't go to the right schools or, you know, because our, our experiences are not necessarily valued by the broader community, but they have tremendous value to us.
0: Well, it sounds like Ma Honey was a legendary entrepreneur to me, and I'm sorry yeah. I didn't get to meet her yeah, and particularly have a drink yeah, with her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: She was amazing. She was amazing. Yeah.
0: And so, remind me, Terry, what year you guys uh, started the business?
1: So we actually uh, bought. So just yeah, a little background. We we are the largest black-owned bank, but we started as a community bank in Boston. Uh, we became when I say we, my husband and I. He's the chairman, CEO. I'm the president. We acquired the bank, uh the community bank in Boston in 1995. Uh, at the time, it was a $50 million bank operating in the local community of Boston and it was in trouble. And so we came in, uh, we moved from New York to Boston and started to uh, turn the bank around. In fact, turn the bank around.
0: And you purchased the bank, yes, Terry?
1: Yes, we did. We did. Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, nobody was purchasing little community banks. You know, there wasn't a sense of of value. Specifically, it was, it was a black owned bank. Uh, it's always been a black owned bank. Um, but then we ultimately purchased four black owned banks. Um, I'm in Miami right now. There's one in Boston, then in Miami, and then two in LA. And we combined them into one and changed our name to One United Bank. And from the purchase of these banks, as well as growing organically we 've become the largest black owned bank in the country. Now, let me say, <laughs> as banks go we 're still a small bank, you know so we 're a big fish in a little pond, but we are the largest black owned bank um, We have you
0: hey, know, niche down you, you dominate yeah. your niche yeah. congratulations, yeah, exactly. you did yeah. it. You started yeah. off with a failing bank in one thousand nine hundred and ninety five yeah. and and you 're the shit now
1: yeah yeah well we, we are um, you know, it's sort of a lot of things that I would say. We not only started as a community bank, but we transformed uh, to being a, a digital bank. So we're both local as well as online. We have customers in every state uh, in the country, including Alaska, Hawaii. We have over 100,000 customers, um, and we we focus on financial literacy. We actually have an online free financial literacy program. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you go to oneunite.com slash learn, and it's free online courses. And, you know, we, we partner with an organization called EverFi. And they, they're amazed at how many of our customers take their online, the online courses that we offer. You know, in addition to, I, I'd say we have the whole spectrum of, of customers. We have some that have few resources, and then we have some that have a lot of resources, and we really try to accommodate them all.
0: So that's very cool. And I I love this idea that, uh, and this is something that people who want to expand their category naturally do, right, is they make the category bigger. And if you want more people to engage in banking and in banking services, it starts with financial literacy, right? One of my my favorite expressions is, if you want to sell Bibles, there's got to be Christians, And so you are teaching people financial literacy so that they will therefore need financial products, be they bank accounts and checking accounts and all the other things that you do. Yes.
1: Yes. And I would even say before that, um, we are, you know, and I, I'm just going to say this bluntly, we we understood that banking is boring. I say that all the time. Banking is boring. People found it boring. And if you talked about banking and you talked about financial literacy, people would be like, oh, you know, they wouldn't show up. They wouldn't get, you know. So our, our first focus was to make banking cool. <laughs> and even then, it was also to speak in our authentic voice. I mean, for the first, from 95 until, I want to say 2015, you know, it was that 2015, we would have described ourselves as a, a community bank that happens to be black. In 2015, we changed our strategy, positioning, communication, and say, no, we are a black bank. And I could tell you at the time, people are like, ooh, I don't know if you should do that. Because they felt that white people wouldn't bank with us. And Black people wouldn't bank with us because there's this view in the Black community that their ice is colder. You know, In other words, that if you had two businesses and one was white and one was Black, offering the exact same services, theirs would still be better. And so it was a real risk that we took. We said, no, we're finding ourselves not being able to speak in our authentic voice. And we're finding that our community is not listening to us. (laughs) Because we're not speaking in our authentic voice. So we uh, then, you know, sort of changed our communication, you know, and it actually started with art. We had an artist paint a mural on our, our branch in Miami that reflected the urban experience. You know, this was five years ago. But if you look at it today, it will be just as relevant. Um, and it, it shares, you know, protest movements. It It shares individuals like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown that were killed. Um, It shows, you know, it just shows a lot of the things that are happening today uh, with this uh, Black Lives Matter social justice. And it really was important for us as a bank to really speak to the challenges that our community face and not to run away from them. So sort of from that came this Bank Black movement. And that that truly was what it is. It was a bank black movement where black people were like, we're gonna move our money to black owned banks. We're going to support black businesses. Uh that was a hundred and eighty degree turn from when we started. When we were started, people were like, Oh, there's no such thing as a black bank. And you know, I, I would hear things like, you know, they won't let us own banks you know like it's just impossible to own a bank a black well, person well just try
0: and stop us yeah i know
1: i know <laughs> no, no i mean so uh, and in fact people didn't even realize that people owned banks you know so it wasn't even just it wasn't a black bank or a black person that could own a bank but they just didn't think people owned banks and i was like no they you look
0: like a people to me i bet yeah, your husband yeah. looks like a people too <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah no but there're like 5000 banks in the country the only 20 of them are are black and But, you know, a lot of those 5,000 banks are owned by families, uh, the majority of them. I mean, you have the big banks that are publicly traded, but you have a lot of community banks that are owned by families. And so, you know, educating our community about that and, and what does the bank do and, you know, was part of the journey. But the good thing is I could say today we get that question a lot less. We've been supporting Black Lives Matter for years. Um, even when people were saying it was a terrorist organization, we we're like, no, it's not. But today, there's a recognition of, you know, the message that it was sending and sending and, and its values just got recently nominated for a Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize. So a lot of the things that we've been saying, um, are sort of becoming more, accepted. Uh, I loved your article um, about, you know, justice deposits. And it, you know, it does reflect, it reflects, you know, our, our youth um, and their understanding of the need for social justice. And it's become much more, you know, I have to say acceptable to to be a company and support social justice movements.
0: Yes. And this is a tough decision, I think. And I think it's a decision that Uh, was brought to the fore in 2020 for a lot of major corporations Mm -hmm. and even small ones. And even for me as as an independent podcaster and author, a lot of us, because of what we were going through as a nation, felt like we should. A lot of us were in a situation where we maybe even felt like we had to. Um, say or do something that it was time to, to to make a change, and I know talking to CEOs, uh, CEOs of major publicly traded companies, you know they have big concerns because if they, as an individual or their company slash brand, comes out and makes a statement, you know Black Lives Matter, by way of example, is a is a controversial group to some, and uh, and so you know you have a chance of pissing some people off and losing a bunch of business. I personally, uh, when I took the stands that I took in 2020, we lost listeners. I got a shit ton of hate mail. I remember I I tweeted. I put it on Twitter and I put it on LinkedIn. Stop fucking killing black people. I was absolutely furious. I forget which one it was because it seems like there's been so many. It was post George Floyd. I think it was a young man in Philadelphia, if my memory's right. But I was just... I turned the news on, and there it was, and I just was absolutely furious, and I got a shit ton of hate, and they're like, oh, wow, he was carrying a knife, and this and that, and I said, listen, do you understand that 90% of the police in, in London do not carry firearms? They deal with people having mental breakdowns with knives all the time, and they don't fucking shoot them. Right. And people are arguing with me. Well, you know, they didn't comply with the police. Well, maybe it's not as simple as that. Have you talked to a black person? Like, I don't know. I just, I think a lot of us last year hit some kind of a breaking point. I certainly did. And I decided, you know, when I get angry, I like to take action. So even as an individual... I felt the negative side of that. I frankly didn't give a shit, but that's just me. But if you're the CEO of a major public corporation, this could mean a tremendous amount to your revenue, damage to your brand if you take a social stance on something. And so it's, 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 it's easier as an individual like myself, much different when you're the CEO of a public company. And so maybe take me into the decision that you and your husband and your executive team made when you decided this was the path you were going to march down.
1: Yeah, no, it was a, it was a difficult decision. Um, but I, I do think. So first of all, the decision was made around the same time I was recognizing my honey. And so it, it really made me realize that authenticity part of it comes from a recognition of who you are and, uh, where, you know, what are your roots? You know, my husband is from Kansas City and Oklahoma. His father's side of the family are, uh, Chickasaw freedmen. His great, 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 great grandfather, uh, Charles Kohey was fighting for the rights of, uh, Chickasaw freedmen, which are basically Native Americans and black people. And so when we think you know, and and we didn't know that. So let just be clear, we didn't. We rec- we learned this, you know, many many years later. Um, but you know, we start to realize that you know s- some of this stuff is. I don't say it's in your DNA, but it 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 really gets passed on from generation to generation. The importance of service, you know, and the importance of of combining, you know, whatever you're passionate about to how can you give back to the community and. And so this, this was our way of, of giving back to the community is, is to take, you know, everyone on this journey. I mean, you know, neither one of us grew up, you know, even I talk about my great grandmother. She had all these resources. You know, by the time I came around, you know, I'm third generation, you know, they, they say wealth, you know, lasts for three generations. Well, I was, by the time it got to me, I didn't have a lot of money. Um, but, you know, building wealth from, from where I started, um, really helped me explain to people how it's done. and But I only could do that if I told them my story. You know, I went to public schools. You know, when I got to Brown, I didn't even know what Ivy League was. I applied to Brown because someone told me to apply. They gave me the most money. I showed up. When I got there, I had this big old, I always tell people I had this big old red Afro. I had a tube top and some hip huggers. And I walked out, I walked around and people were like, who is that? I called my mother and I was like, I don't like it here. I don't like the white people or the black people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because it was just such a cultural shock, you know, from Indian town to (laughs) to Ivy League. I mean, that was just like, um, but I tell people, so I, you know, I I know what that journey is like. I know that, you know, the sort of what goes on, not just financially, but mentally, emotionally. And so, and, but in order to tell that story, I, I did, I had to speak in And my authentic voice. And I I also, you know, tell this other story. I actually was uh, held at gunpoint by police uh, here in Miami. I was sitting in a car with a friend, eating some food, just, you know, sitting there. And, you know, all of a sudden I hear, get out of the car with your hands up. And I'm like, and I turn around and look, I'm sitting in the driver's side and there's a policeman with a gun to my head. And I'm like, okay, is this real? Like, I I mean, I was just like, is this real? And he shouted again, get out of the car with your hands up. And I realized, okay, how do I do that? How do I get out of the car with my hands up? I know that sounds like weird, but I mean that's what I'm going through. And so then I sort of reached down with one hand and I put the other hand sort of out the window so he could see it, because I was concerned that if I put my hands down, you know, so I reach out. And I open up, you know, the door and then I stand and I put my hands up. And I will tell you, Chris, the the thing that people do not talk about, and I'm just amazed they don't talk about it, is how you have to fight your body from running, that fight or flight, because I don't care if it's the police officer, somebody's holding a gun to your head and it's a human being. And I'm like, I got kids, you know, I I got a family. You know, my body was telling me to run. My body was telling me to flick that gun from pointing at my head. And I had to, it, it took all my mental and emotional like strength to just stand there in that vulnerable position with a gun to my head. And so when people say, you know, why did he run? I like, I completely understand it. Now imagine if I didn't have full mental health, intellectual, whatever. You know, imagine if I had like, you know, something wrong, like, a, you know, I don't know, something was wrong, you know, there are all these things that I could imagine are happening in someone's mind. And here I was, you know, president owner of a bank, you know, whatever, you know, all this intellectual firepower. And I still, it took everything to stand there. So, you know, and then it, you know, ended up being something, you know, it's like, I, their, their reason for doing it, was unjustifiable. Like, if I were white, I know that they would not have done that. There was something they heard in the neighborhood that led them to come to my car with their guns drawn. I didn't even know the person that was in the car with me, the same thing was happening to him. I had no idea because I'm, you know, I'm focusing on me. But there was just no reason for that to happen. So, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, from those lived experiences, you know, I can relate to our community on a visceral level, yet I also have the knowledge and expertise that comes with running a bank and going to, you know, doing all the corporate stuff and trying to combine those so that they, they're bridged. You know, so that they're bridged. So the people that are in banking understand what our community is going through. So the people in our community understand that, you know, what what the opportunities are in banking is where I spend my life.
0: Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry that happened. I I want to share with you when Eddie, uh, Yoon, my brother from another mother who um, sort of pioneered putting together that uh, Harvard Business Review article on justice deposits and brought the group of us together. Of course, I, I, you know, I'm not a complete moron. I understand how wealth gets created and I understand I'm I'm a champion of entrepreneurship. I am an uneducated high school dropout uh, at 18 years old um and with very few options
1: not uneducated well uneducated
0: in a traditional sense they won't won't let me into harvard but they'll let me speak there (laughs) (laughs) and so i know the power of entrepreneurship particularly you know there's some people for whom entrepreneurship is a way up in the world and god bless them Mm -hmm. but for many of us entrepreneurship is a way out I'm the product of a single mother and the product of a tough background and, and and entrepreneurship was my way out. So I get all that. What I didn't understand was, uh, until Eddie started to share it with me, the statistics on how the black community is treated in the financial system, whether it's small business loans, whether it's home loans and the prices they pay for uh, interest rates access to uh, lines of credit, credit cards, interest rates on those things, et cetera, et cetera. He shared with me some of the stats, and it, it, it was shocking. I, I was ignorant of how poorly my black brothers and sisters are treated by the financial system. Is there anything you want to say about that, Terry? No,
1: you're, you're absolutely right in terms of the statistics and just uh, to share some of them. You know, the uh, home ownership rate in the black community is 30% lower than in the white community. Um, the uh, number of loans that go to uh, black families, the number of uh, mortgages from national banks, and I, you quoted it actually in your article, it's one to 2% of all mortgages go to black families. If you look at the, the same family with the same credit score and the same income, they still are less likely to get approved for a loan. And if they're approved, their loan's gonna cost more uh, than a white family. Um, If you look at a home in a black community and the same exact home in a white community, the black community's home is gonna be valued less. So when your home is valued less, that means you can get less of a mortgage and you know it goes on and on. So the statistics are definitely bad. And if you look at even the net worth, the average net worth, according to Brookings, the average net worth of a of the black fam of black families is seventeen thousand, compared to one hundred seventy seven thousand for white families. So the statistics are bad. At the same time, there's hope. <laughs> there is hope, um, and that's actually you know I started off saying that's what I'm so excited about because we we like to look at that difference. And recognize that that difference could be one transaction. You know, even if you think about your life, I'm just curious as to what that transaction was for you, you know, but it it could have been, you know, a business. You started a business. It could be that you bought a home, you know, but it's usually one transaction that can take you from, you know, basically poverty into having something that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about people that have nothing versus something. We're not talking about people that you know have nothing to becoming rich and wealthy. We're just saying nothing to something. And one transaction can do that. And so that's why we're trying to get, I mean there's definitely public policy, you know, for years they stopped us from building wealth, buying you know, buying homes and all that kind of stuff. And we need public policy changes. But what we say is, you know, in the meantime, and because you know public policy moves slowly you know, focus on one transaction to build wealth for your family. Um, and that that's really, you know, sort of what we're trying to do now, because the, the numbers are bad. But you, we can all make a difference by, you know, sort of taking that, that journey and doing that one transaction. And so for for Netflix, you mentioned, or for all these, you know, Biogen, Biogen put ten million dollars in the bank. Netflix put ten million dollars in the bank. You know, there are all these uh, uh, companies. I mean, even for this campaign that we're doing, Visa, we're partnering with Visa. So, you know, these corporations are stepping up, and you know, I I hope they realize what a difference they're making. Um, it makes a big difference, you know, when you can do a program in partnership with Visa. It makes a big difference when a corporation, you know, puts ten million dollars, because that's ten million dollars that can go to work, you know, and that can support the lending that we do in our community. You know, it makes a difference when someone puts capital, you know, 10 million in capital, we can multiply that ten times and do a hundred million in loans. You know, so um all of those transactions, as we're calling them, all of those um Ways in which people can help really makes a big difference, and and now you know again you talk about it in your article. See, I'm just <laughs> in your article, but with interest rates so low, it's not even a, you know it's no different. It's no different. In fact, our rates are higher than Bank of America. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean, only a few basis points, but they're higher. So hey, I'll take uh,
0: those basis points. <laughs> I,
1: know, I know. I'm just saying. So
0: well, and the other thing, of course, that we say in the article is for individuals you know, the FDIC insures yeah. accounts, most, most bank accounts up until, yeah. remind me what the number is, Terry, how much money? Two
1: hundred fifty. 250? Yeah. 250, so if I put
0: $250,000 into a savings account with you right now, and God forbid something terrible were to happen to the bank, the U.S. federal government protects me, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the reality is with interest rates being plus or minus the same at most banks, with the FDIC being in place for a reasonably good size number, 250 grand, yep. it's no skin off my nose to open an account and make a deposit into your bank. I'm going to get the same interest. I got the same protection. And the aha of course is, Hey, wait a minute. Banks can only lend when people make deposits. Yes. Yeah. And so if we make a deposit yeah. in a black owned bank, guess what? That bank can make more loans. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like Absolutely. It's that simple, right?
1: It is that simple, and I I also remind people that we're not asking for a contribution. It's still your money, <laughs> you know. You can take it out, <laughs> you know. So it's 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 really you know better than a contribution. I want to say because it's sitting there, it's collecting interest. We're using it to to lend to our community, and it's still your money.
0: Because I think a lot of people have you know the. I don't want to get political or anything, but you know, people I get concerned about wealth distribution and taxes and all this sort of stuff. It's like, hey, 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 slow down, there, handsome. This is not of that, and this is none of that. Yeah. This is just where you choose to do business, banking, and right. there's no skin off your nose if you want to do a justice deposit. And sort of this awakening that that I've had that, well, you know, I have many black and brown friends, many people I consider family. And they're getting effed over meaningfully in a way that, you know, I'm somebody, <laughs> Terry, in some ways, angry is my happy place. I understand anger. You know what I mean? And when I, when Eddie was sharing with me these numbers, I'm like, how come bank CEOs aren't going to jail? This is America. This is what you're not allowed to discriminate in our country. It's illegal. Remember don't we have laws against this? Why aren't bank CEOs going to jail? Right, I, I very I got very angry when I heard about how bad this was, and then of course the simple aha that if we deposit some money with you, that you know what that can make a big difference. And when a company like Netflix or BioGen or some of these other early leaders in justice deposits do this, hey, we're now starting to change some things, aren't we?
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think it was a aha moment for a lot of them. I mean, we you know, we thank Netflix. They were the first to really come out with this. And we said, because of you, you know, a lot of corporations are doing it. And I, you know, again, I think that they, the corporations realize this is a, this is a way that we can, you know, contribute to, you know, what these, these banks are are trying to do. Um, and what I, you know, I think it's also important for For people to know what we do, you know, so over seventy percent of our lending actually does go into the community, and yet we our losses, our credit losses, are almost zero. So it's not like we're doing lending that is risky. We are just doing lending that isn't being done by other institutions, and so, um, but that, that that lending is giving our community an opportunity to build wealth. And so it's, you know, and that's really what banks do. They take it, like you said, deposits Deposits are like gas to a car. You know, you got to have deposits in order to do loans. And banks take in deposits and they lend them out and they they have to do it in a safe and sound manner. You know, that's a regulatory term, but it's, you know, they have to do it safely. And so we, we've been doing this now. We, we've lent over a billion dollars since we, uh, my husband and I have owned this bank. We have lent over a billion dollars in low to moderate income communities. And our losses have been, our credit losses have been almost
0: zero. I know you're a married woman. Yes. And I'm a and very a married man.
1: And a mom as well.
0: And a mom. Yes. And I'm a very married man. But I got to tell you, I love you for that. <laughs> A billion dollars, and and first of all, that's an extraordinary achievement. Second of all, what makes me angry about it, and what does it say about our country when there was there's this community, a billion dollars in loans over you know years, who with with a, an incredible high rate of. Um, of, uh, you know, paying back and paying the interest and doing what you're supposed to do when you make an agreement with a bank, being a good person, living up to your commitments. What does it say when banks chose not to do business with good customers who paid and fulfilled their end of the bargain for so many years? So, So in other words, did you discover, and I hate to put it this way, that racism is a bigger motivation than making money?
1: Hmm. So there's no question that racism, I didn't necessarily say it was a motivator as much as it got in the way and gets in the way of, of organizations making more money. So What I will say is that it requires a different perspective and different understanding of a community, you know. And and what I mean by that is there was a time where it was just straight out racism, redlining. You know, they just, you know, it was written into the law that you could not buy a home. A black person couldn't buy a home in specific neighborhoods and banks wouldn't lend to you if you were black. So that was just, that was legal. So that's clearly where racism was trumping uh, making money. Um, But today, what I would say is that, not that there still isn't that, there's less of it. What it is today is that there isn't a commitment to doing what's necessary to outreach to the community, and to ensure that you're treating them fairly. Cause that takes a commitment. You know, that, that, that's what I would say. I mean, sort of interesting as we've been talking to these, these uh, companies that are putting deposits in the bank. They, their rules would say that all of their money should be in Bank of America or national banks. I mean, that, that's what their rules would say. And they had to change their rules to put a deposit in us. You know, it wasn't like they just said, "Okay, well, we're not going to put any money in black banks because we're racist. They just had rules that resulted in us not getting any money.
0: It's interesting. I, I remember being educated about exactly this in the very beginning of the Me Too movement. One of my favorite words is meritocracy. And I always thought that was a great word because you're judged on your merit. Isn't that what we all want? And what I was told by some of my dear uh, women friends who are executives and CEOs and the like is, well, it depends on how you define the merit. So as it relates to women on boards, by way of example, if you say, well, this is the criteria of what we need for a board member, when in point of fact, the number of people who meet that criteria are almost all white dudes, then, you know, maybe you're not doing it on purpose but it actually is not a meritocracy. Right. And so, so, you know, the Clintonian, it depends on what your definition of is, is, is often Mm -hmm. relevant in these discussions. Yes. At a 30,000 foot view, we all want to be judged on our merit and nothing else. But in point of fact, when it's rigged, whether intentionally or not, it's still rigged.
1: Yeah. There's this concept of like disparate treatment versus disparate impact, you know, so you could, Uh, Basically, think that you're treating everyone fairly, but if you look around and you see you're not doing any lending to black people, then whatever you're doing is having a disparate impact. And I think that's what these women are saying. If you look at the board and you see there's nothing but white guys, then whatever your criteria is, it may seem to be, you know, that you're treating everyone fairly, but it's having a disparate impact. And that's that, that piece of it is really, you know, where I like people to start. You know, I always say, look around you. <laughs> you know, just look around you. If you only see white guys, then something you're doing is wrong. <laughs> you know, if you don't see any women. You don't see any black people. If you don't see anybody that doesn't look exactly like you, and you're a white guy. Then, then you then you need to figure out well, what is it that we're doing? Because you may not have the intention of you know treating people in a unfair manner, but the result of what you're doing is having a disparate impact.
0: Yes. And I think this is something that um, some of us have had to get whacked with a couple of times to realize. (laughs) Although luckily for me, I've always worked with a a large percentage of women. I I don't know what it is. Uh, Yeah, I was raised by a a single mother. I was very
1: close close to to my grandmother. I have a
0: sister. And also, you know, in tech marketing. Uh, tech, the tech fun- uh, the marketing function in tech tends to have a lot more women than most others. Sort of tech and HR are where you typically yeah, find more, true. as a percentage of women in tech companies than in others. So, as a CMO, I had lots of women around all the time. So, uh, always and always been very comfortable with that. So, I would get a good whack. But, but it is something that this notion of you can't just say meritocracy. You gotta you gotta scratch a little bit deeper.
1: Yep, absolutely. And in fact, that that is also. Uh, something that I remind our community because there sometimes is a feeling of not being worthy when you find that you're not getting the opportunities that you deserve, for lack of a better term, or that you qualify for. And just recognizing that, you know, as I I always say to us, to to our community, you know, this wealth gap was something that was done to us. It's not something that we did. Like it's, you know, let, let's let's get rid of the myth. It's not because we spend too much. It's not because we don't manage our money. You know, it's not because we don't have profitable businesses. It's none of those things, in fact. When you look at the data, you see that we actually are making less for the same job. If we made the same for the same job, in fact, the study was done by the Federal Reserve uh out of Cleveland. If we did the same, if we were paid the same, black people were paid the same for the same job beginning in 1977, there would be no wealth gap today. So it's not, you know, because we just, you know, don't. I mean, spend our money on the wrong things, you know, same thing, home equity, you know, big difference between black and white wealth is home equity. But we couldn't actually get a home. Uh, We couldn't buy a home. Um, in the '50s and '60s, when there was all this money being made available to white America to move to the suburbs, so there were laws in place that were stopping us from building wealth. That doesn't mean that we have to sit here and say, "Okay, we were treated poorly, and you know, what was us?" And you know, uh, you know that that you, you still have to get up and do something about it, and you still have to, you know, sort of overcome the hurdles. Right. But it is important to start with, okay. You know, as I was a little child driving around, seeing all these wonderful homes that people were living in, you know, wondering why we didn't why we didn't live. I, I remember this in Indian town. There was this really great community, you know. So you know, think about my grandmother. I didn't know at the time, but she actually had money. She could not live in the community that was so wonderful. And we drive around there and I'd be like, why, did, why, did, why don't we live here? And I didn't realize as a kid that we could not. She could not live there. She, we had to live on the other side of the track.
0: It's unbelievable. And. You know, I have friends who had to um, shop for homes at night yeah, yeah. because they didn't want to be seen in the neighborhood because of their color. And yeah, uh, yeah. it might be problematic and, you know, all these horrible stories. And the thing I don't understand is I've lived my whole professional life in a startup innovation and therefore creation paradigm. And I live in a world, having grown up in Silicon Valley, I live in a world where there's this idea that, it, particularly if you wear your entrepreneurial headset, where we create great new things that make a difference, that create a lot of wealth, but do a lot of good things. And and there's this notion that a human being or a few human beings can get together And if they're creative and they're innovative and they apply themselves and they work hard and all that, they can create something of tremendous value where there was nothing before. That thing can be a source of abundance for many and and so forth. And then there's the other human mentality, which is, well, you know, we're all just a bunch of mindless animals and there's only so many bananas. And so we just got to fight over the bananas. And if I have more bananas. That means you have left bananas and your job is to get the bananas for me and vice versa. And you go, well, we could fight over the bananas or we could say, Hey, how do we grow more food? Right. Right. And so, so, and maybe I'm just naive. You know, I grew up in a very, um, multicultural integrated urban environment and there was no overt, there was none of this shit. I had friends of, all faiths and you know it just i didn't feel this thing right Um, Uh, i grew up in montreal canada and so but i guess my point is there's this sentiment that says if we all do well we all do well as opposed to the fight over dwindling resources and look i'm no expert at all but it seems to me part of the, the 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 primordial uh reason for racism is I fear those who are not the same as me. And part of why I fear those that who are not the same as me is because we're fighting over limited resources. And if you have that mindset, then other people are bad. And if you have an abundance mindset, like when people come together and collaborate and, and, and create, we can, we, can, we can do anything. Am I naive here?
1: I, I don't know if it's naive because I do think that your way of thinking exists. And I, I, I try to look at the... Um, your way of thinking gives me hope, gives us hope that there are more of you, <laughs> you know, than there are of people that really do feel like we need to fight over, you know, the, 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 you know, the scraps, for lack of a better term. So, um, I think they both exist in this country that there is definitely, there are definitely people that, you know, and, and I, especially as, you know, our youth and I look at, you know, my kids and I look at their friends and they're, you know, same thing, very diverse. They're very, they just are much more accepting of diversity than, you know, than my generation. Um, so I, I do think things are changing and and things have changed. Things I mean, it, we we had 250 years of slavery. You know, we had 100 years of Jim Crow. You know, we've only been legally free. Black people have only been legally free for 50 years. 50 years. That's when the Voting Rights Act was passed. That's when Civil Rights Act was passed. We've only been legally free for 50 years. So you know we've come a long way, you know, in 50 years, and and we're definitely a whole lot better than we were were 400 years ago. So I, I I'm hopeful, and things continue to change. But I do think it's going to take more people like you that have that perspective, because we can we we can do so many great things together if we can sort of get past this racism stuff. I mean, you know, America is just you know what I what I love about our country is our entrepreneurialism. You know, we're always thinking of like, you know, we we just, we just come up with stuff. You know, we just, we're like, you, you can't tell us no, you know, you, you can't tell us it can't be done, you know, we're going to come up with a way for it to get done. And that, that's something that's a part of our DNA. You know, it's not, I, you know, I, I have, you know, the fortune of, you know, being around people from a variety of countries. And I know sort of the methodicalism of which other countries both teach their kids and think you know step by step by step you know don't go out of the lines americans we always going out we're coloring out of the lines we're you know so so i i i'm hopeful freedom baby freedom yeah exactly it's freedom freedom of thought you know freedom and um and so i i'm hopeful that you know again if if we could just get over this racism stuff we could do some really amazing things together yeah
0: amen hallelujah now, now speaking of that, I have to ask you. It's February. It's Black History Month in America. Maybe personally and professionally, what is? And of course, you talked about Juneteenth. Yes. Um, what, what does Black History Month mean to you, both personally and professionally, Terry?
1: It's just funny. I just did this interview. This, what does blackness mean? You know, to me, and um, you know, being black, blackness uh, means uh, a lot of things to me. It means uh, it means actually uh, thinking outside of the box and. Um, being creative, um, both uh, artistically, intellectually, because we, you know, we've had to overcome a lot of hurdles, and the only way that we've been able to do that is, is to be creative. It means to me, it means family. You know, um, there is a um, a sense of family in in the Black community. Um, we're all, you know, we feel the sense of uh, it's an identity, it's a cultural identity. You know, I always say to people, I'm not, you know, a white person with a black face. You know, I was so happy when uh, New York Times made the decision. And I know it's going to sound trivial, but to to use a capital B when they talked about someone who was black. You know, I used to always write and I, you know, black to me, say black person, black, you know, it was capital B. And they would always change it to a small B. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's not a, it's not just a color. <laughs> you know, it actually is a culture. And uh, Black History Month is a celebration of that culture.
0: That's awesome. And uh, I, I think if you want a capital B, you should have one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. I agree. I'm like, they kept you know, editing my stuff. I was like, no, it's capital B. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, maybe tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you've started this company with your husband and your partners and your partners in life. And you, you made a company and you made some people. And and you've created a lot of things together, you and this guy. And so, tell me about what it's like having this very big relationship, personally, professionally, as parents, the whole thing. How how does that all work, Terry?
1: So uh, we actually uh, met in New York um, after he went to uh, Harvard as well, and we had mutual friends there. So we met in New York through mutual friend, a uh, mutual friend. So you know, the story always—I want to say—a story always tell. What when I think of my husband, the thing that really drove me to him was a specific conversation we had when we were dating, and he asked me a question about something, and I sort of gave him a—I don't know—just sort of a general answer, and he kept asking me, and he was like, "No, I really want to know what you think." <laughs> And what I would say is from that very day to today, he has always wanted to know what I think and I've always wanted to know what he thinks. And so what has made us uh, successful in working together is that we are very, very authentic, uh, respectful and clear with each other about what we think even when we disagree. (laughs) And sometimes people will hear us and we'll be at it and saying, Oh, no, I don't think so. I think so. And they'll be like, Ooh, what's going on? And it doesn't, it, it, it's to us, it's, it's really about getting to the right answer. And it has always been about getting to the right answer, not, you know, you're better than me or you're a man. I'm a woman. It's just, you know, we're trying to solve, you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to move the dial, <laughs> move forward quickly. And effectively, and the only way to do that is to really hear what people think so that and, and to get it on the table so we can make the right decision. So that that's our relationship. <laughs> um, you know, we have two kids. Uh, our daughter is 26. Um, she lives in London. And our son is 24. He actually works for us and, and lives uh, in Boston, but spends a lot of time in L.A., um, our daughter worked for Salesforce for many years in London and she's now, um, at the London School of Economics getting a master's in the management of digital innovation. Let's <laughs> say that.
0: Wow. I, that I, sounds like a super yeah, cool degree. Yeah. I'm not sure what that means, but yeah. I'm interested in it.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's sort of, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, and I guess there's a lot at the London School of Economics, there are all these experts in like blockchain and you know, sort of what's going to be sort of the next thing as it relates to technology, you know, open, you know, bank APIs and uh, artificial intelligence. So she's learning, you know, a lot of that. And, you know, I would say even as a family, we have that same sort of uh, sense of, you know, everyone being authentically who they are. And sort of going on our own individual journey. And, and that's that's what we've supported.
0: Now, I also have to ask you, you know, uh, husbands and wives have been known to have a few disagreements along the way. Mm-hmm. And um, I once heard this expression that I have found to be true. And I want to bounce it off of you if I could. Um, there's only two ways to argue with a woman and neither one of them work. <laughs> So that has been pretty much the case in my marriage. Uh, I, I'm curious. You guys, of course, have a marriage. Your parents and a business. Uh, I got to believe there's a few things along the line where your husband really felt strongly about one thing, where you felt strongly about the other. I know what happens in my relationship. <laughs> what happens in yours?
1: Yeah, he eventually comes around to my thinking.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so the truth right is always the truth.
1: Right he eventually makes the right decision. Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting. Um because I, you know, I feel like I, you know, and I, I say this to him now, I feel like I'm sort of uh married to a version of Martin Luther King. <laughs> and I I don't want to put him in that, you know, sort of on that pedestal because you know Martin Luther King was just an amazing person. But you know, my my husband is, is a visionary and I'm a doer, you know, and so Uh sometimes, you know, his vision, you know, I'll say, Well, you can't do that, (laughs) you know. And um and then, you know, it 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 could take a while, but we figure out a way to do it. But when you have those two personalities, and so I'm sure, you know, I don't know what you and your wife says, but I'm you know
0: it's it's very similar. Very similar. So
1: yeah, okay, yeah. And so
0: She'll she's me. an absolute doer not not that she doesn't have some big visions yes. of her own she does right. but but in general that's the relationship
1: right right and, that, and that's the other thing is that people when you say that and so you you can relate to this it's not that you know i don't have vision or he doesn't do but there still is that you know sort of weight i guess you'd say and he he has you know always come up with like these visions, we you know, and we, we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for his vision, but we also wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my doing, you know? And yes, so, my,
0: my wife, Carrie, has a t-shirt and on it, it it's like a workout t-shirt and yeah. on it, it says, I got this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, the, I mean, that's our relationship and, it, and, it's, uh, and we respect each other for what we bring to it. You know, even though, yeah, there are times when he dreams and my first response is no, (laughs) that he finds frustrating. And then there's times when I'm sitting there trying to get something done and he wants to talk to me about a dream. And I'm like, I don't have time for this, you know, and it's
0: I'm busy. I got a to do list over here. Somebody's got to put food on the table here.
1: Exactly. So so that, you know, that's the, that's the butting of heads that we have. Um And I, you know, and I, I also think that, you know, and I'm trying to sort of put my, my finger on this, you know, we are, we are life partners, you know, and so, um and I, I think sometimes that, that can be missed when people talk about marriage or even business, you know, um, yes, you know, I love him and we're romantic and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But it's also that we're life partners and we have this thing now where uh, about COVID and, and the vaccine. And we're like, OK, one of us is going to take it and then the other one's going to watch to see if they die. If they don't die, then the other one will take it. You know? And we're like very practical about this. And we're like, we're not going to both take it. You know what I mean? I mean, we're just like, okay, that's what we're going to do.
0: You, gonna go first, you go first. And if you don't fall over, exactly. maybe I'll go next. I'll
1: go next you know? But we're going to make sure that, you know, we're both going to be here. And, you know, that, it, that I don't know. that That's just the way we think. That's the way we think.
0: I love it. And if you were, let's say maybe I was a younger entrepreneur and I, I had the awakening that you both had, which is, Hey, wait a minute, people can own banks and Hey, wait a minute in an industry dominated by a handful of giants, by definition, there's gotta be opportunity on the, on the table that they don't get to, because with all due respect to big companies who who play an important role, big companies can be big, dumb companies too. And so often in the wake of that, there, there are niche opportunities and, and and there's new technologies and all these sorts of things. So if I was a younger person, I, I'd like you, I had a grandma or great grandma that inspired me. I liked finance. Maybe I was good at math. Maybe I had a uh, inkling for the stock market. Whatever it is, I'm drawn to finance and I think, shit, it'd be cool to start or own my own bank. What advice would you give me?
1: So uh, the first advice I would give is is your desire for money or is it because you are passionate about something? Because if your desire is for money, I would say you are likely to lose. (laughs) And this is the thing I say to everyone. Understand that you're going to be competing with someone who is passionate about what they're doing. I woke up every day and I'm just like, I'm excited about what I do. I know banking like the back of my hand because I have been passionate about it for 25, 30 years. And so when you think about life, you have to think about what is it that you're passionate about and try to turn that passion into a business opportunity. Don't do it for the money because you will find yourself, I won't say losing, but you won't be as successful as the person that you're competing with. That's passionate. Um, nothing beats passion.
0: Now, Terry, you do know you're a banker.
1: <laughs> I know, but I'm a passionate a- banker. And you
0: just said, don't do it for the money. <laughs> <know>. And you're <laughs> like a very successful banker. <laughs> yes, yes, I love is- that about you.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, I mean, so like, I, you know, I look at myself as a kid. I didn't think I was going to be a banker, but what I did love is puzzles. I used to love puzzles. I still love, you know, like word puzzles, number puzzles, and I'm still doing puzzles. That's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm a banker that that helps people put together the right puzzle for them to build wealth. I put together an organization that's that's you know, I fix the puzzle. I I I put the puzzle together, I put the pieces together. And I'm still doing the same thing I love to do as a child. So I, you know, that's why I say to people, you know, what are you passionate about? What is it that you like? I, I'm gonna use an example of my husband who, you know, he went to law school. But he's not an attorney. And he realized that, you know, what attorneys do is they do a whole lot of, you know, reading, research, you know, sort of dot in the I's, crossing the T's. That was not something he was passionate about. He was passionate about using the law, you know, but he wasn't a, a, passionate about being an attorney. So I, I think that it has to start from there. What is it that you're passionate about? And then the second I would say, and, you know, again, it goes back to my honey is is to look around you because there's someone around you that can help you you don't you don't even not even realize it there's a family member there's a friend and they are they are watching you or they are there to help you and you you're not even seeing them because you know for a variety of reasons you know you you dismiss who they are you don't recognize that they could be helpful so look around you because, you know, and, and I will say, and I, I know you get this all the time, you, you probably get fewer people that call you for advice than you have advice to give. <laughs> you know, you probably see people that are doing some crazy things, never asking you, Chris, do you think this is a good idea?
0: <laughs> well, that that's true in my family. Yes, The kind family. of that's work I that. do now means... I get a ton of people all day, every day asking me for advice. No, I mean, I'm in a bit in of a family,
1: th- But in your family Yeah, in
0: my family, what? yeah, I could tell my I tell my niece and nephew what they need to be listening to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, that's what I mean. In your family, it's like amazing how much we don't take advantage of the people that are closest to us. And so that's the second thing I would say. Take advantage of the people that that love you, that care about you and that, you know, can give you good advice. Um, and then the other I would say is recognize the, the idea and the execution of the idea is more important than capital. Capital will come. But if you have a good idea and you're executing it, well, capital will come. Don't go for the capital first and say, oh, I have this right idea, but I need the money. Like, no, start working on the idea, especially today with the Internet. You can work on things for not a lot of money. This is the best time to be an entrepreneur ever. You know, you don't have to build brick and mortar. You don't have to have that huge investment. You can, you have an idea, you can create something, you can put up a, you know, a website or, you know, use social media and test it out and start to see it grow. And then as it grows, if it's a great idea, then you will be able to find the capital.
0: Amen, hallelujah, sister. I get asked this all the time from entrepreneurs, you know, what venture capitalists should we go meet and who should we reach out to? And, da, 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 da. and I said, well, you, you can do that. Or you can do some legendary stuff that gets their attention and they will actually call you. They're like, what, what, what? You know, we just, uh, not, not long ago, we had this awesome entrepreneur on named Gloria Huang and she's the founder of this amazing new helmet company called oh, thousand yes, helmets
1: yes, i i i listened to that podcast yeah that's amazing
0: isn't she incredible Yeah, and she started i can't remember the exact numbers but i think she saved up 10 15 $20, 000, something like that she got it going she did exactly what you said right. and she raised some money on kickstarter right. and then out the door and now she's transforming an industry right yes
1: yes and i i don't want to take away from the fact that you know there isn't as much capital for black businesses as there are for other businesses, which is absolutely true. But all I'm saying is that that's not the first thing that you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about the idea, executing the idea, testing the idea, and sort of getting it to the point where, yes, as you said, people will come to you.
0: Awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, Terry, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have a country to transform and an empire to keep building, but is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap?
1: No, well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me, or I don't know if I invited myself, I don't remember, but it's just nice to be here. I, I've been listening to your podcasts, and they're fabulous, you really, and I, and I, I feel like I'm, I, you know, I'm honored to be in the company of, of the wonderful people that you've interviewed. Um, and I, I also love the format of just having a conversation and not, you know, turning it into, you know, a show, I guess. Um, And I really have felt that way, you know, since we've been talking. So
0: thank you. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I very much wanted you to be here. Um, So I want to thank you for the gift of your time and also uh, not to be overly presumptuous, but I would like to invite you back at some point down the road and get an update on the business and let us know how things are going. And, you know, maybe, maybe before or after Juneteenth or I don't, you tell me whatever makes any sense, but, um i think what you folks are doing is legendary oh thank you it's inspiring thank you um it was shocking to me to learn some of the facts yeah. and therefore inspiring for me to learn about you and your husband and your business thank you. and um i i just can't thank you enough terry for the job you do in the world and and for uh, being willing to spend this time with me
1: oh well thank you again for having me and uh And uh, yes, I would absolutely love to come back and and tell you about what happened. I'm I'm so excited about the conference and everything. So I, I would love to come back and share that with you.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. Stay legendary, my friend.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Well, there she is, the legendary Terry Williams. And uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, why not share it with uh, a couple of your closest friends right now? Most podcast player apps have an easy share feature. So uh, if you look on your phone, if you're listening on your phone, uh, why not email it or text it to somebody you love? And I want to tell you, we also have some legendary new episodes coming out uh, very soon, including Dushka Zapata. She's back. If you're a longtime listener, you know exactly who she is. If this is uh, if you don't know Dushka and you're new, she was our first guest. She's been our most regularly recurring guest, and that's because uh, she's an angel on this earth. Uh, she's one of the most prolific and consumed writers in the English language. She's a, a, a monster megastar on Q&A uh, website, Cora, And she's written, I don't know, about 10 books now. Anyway, she's incredible. So she's back. And um, a bunch more. Anyway, some legendary, uh, legendary episodes in the queue. Make sure you're subscribed. Today, more than ever, you need a solid foundation for your business. You need to be able to manage with precision down to the penny. You need to be able to change business models. You need to be able to increase distribution. You need to be able to change suppliers, increase uh, omni-channel commerce, and all kinds of other forms of shucking and jiving. And that's why NetSuite by Oracle is legendary. You see, NetSuite builds flexibility in. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions and you're getting ready for an IPO, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need with the flexibility to move with your market. Uh, go to NetSuite.com slash different and there you can set up your free product tour. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And um, thousands of companies around the world IT professionals, security professionals, and business leaders rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data, data in motion, data at rest, structured data, data in the stream. It doesn't matter. Splunk allows you to bring any kind of data together, analyze it, uh, get insights from it, and most importantly, take and trigger actions Check out Splunk.com/slash-d2e and get empowered to bring data to everything. That's Splunk.com/slash-d2e. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Terry Williams. Woo! Uh, so stoked we got to have that conversation. Check out OneUnitedBank.com and maybe uh, consider doing what I did, which is uh, I opened an account and I made a deposit. Check out oneunitedbank.com. Also want to thank my uh, friend Gail Moody Bird for uh, helping to make today happen. Thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank Susan McDowell for also helping to make today happen. My friends at onelifefullylived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, lifefullylived.org. Now, do you need an assistant? One that's nowhere near you and one's never going to get near you? (laughs) Check out my friends at bottleneck.online. They are the first dedicated distant assistant company. So imagine having a legendary assistant who's a real person, who's technology enabled, but is nowhere near you. Bottleneck.online. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for 20 years. Remember... Your website is almost always the first thing that people see when they check out your company. And uh, so first impressions matter. Check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. That's Atranet. And uh, go to Lockhead.com while you're on the internet. L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D dot com. And make sure you're signed up for Category Pirates. We have set sail. We're out. And uh, we're doing our thing, and we got the first couple letters dropped. And um, if you want to be able to see and create the future in different ways, this might just be for you. And if you can make a difference today, please do our faith-based organizations, our food banks, our hospitals. Uh, if you can make a difference to a charity, now's a great time to do that. All right, I need to warn you that the creators of this podcast may have been consuming libations and that all oddcasts do contain nuts. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast remains the sole property. Of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, all rights do remain perturbed. Before acting on anything you heard today, please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mother, bartender, and definitely spouse. We are produced and edited by uh, Jason DeFilippo, the GOAT. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J uh, do technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by the wonderful Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Dr. King. Drink, hint, water. Thanks, Candy Dandy. Oh, um, by the way, your spouse called and said it's Okay. Thank you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Jake and Jilly. Sorry, Jake. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. Please stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.